Here it comes. No. No, it's coming. Need a little more volume, I think. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, the announcements are that uh, we got to have our men's prayer breakfast coming up, not day after tomorrow, but a week from day after tomorrow. I believe that's the 15th. So that's going to be men's prayer breakfast followed by our deacons meeting. And then I will be leaving on vacation after church on Sunday morning, the 16th. So I will be here on the 16th. And then Jim's going to continue his series on Isaiah uh, at that week, which would be the 18th, 20th, and then the following Sunday. Uh, I won't come back until Monday. There's Nothing fun for a pastor to go away for a week's vacation and have to be back in the pulpit on Sunday. I learned that my first year. You know, you, all week long you're just thinking about what's coming. So I'll be back on the next Monday, and uh, so we're just going to take a little bit of vacation. Um, Monday, This last Monday, I got a phone call from a, a friend of ours who was also instrumental in getting us out of Ukraine. And because she called the right people who got in touch with me and got us out. And um, she said that uh, the speaker that she had had last Thursday night, and, of course, I can never go listen to any of the speakers she has at their church because I'm busy on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights here. So she said that there were some other people who hadn't heard him on Thursday night, so they were going to have a little dinner at a restaurant over in Meyerland, and so we went to that Monday night, and this is, I met Aaron Lipkin and his wife Esther, who's down here on the front row. And Aaron has been working, he's not an archaeologist, but he's been working with archaeologists for uh, quite a number of years and very much involved in uh, teaching and traveling around the world, teaching various churches and synagogues about these uh, incredible discoveries that have been made. And a lot of these are not well known because uh, it takes years sometimes for there to be, uh, for things to get published. And you know, I've taught you things about the location of the Praetorium where Jesus was tried before Pilate. None of that's been published and many other things that are true. So we're going to find out lots of interesting things. And the more he talked the other night, the more I thought, he's in Houston this week, I need to just capture this moment and have him talk because he he also works with Scott Stripling. And for those of you who did not go to Israel this time and missed out on the excursion to Shiloh, which was a hundred times better than the one we did 11 years ago, uh, he's been doing a lot of work with at Joshua's altar with Scott Stripling. And Scott lives in Richmond, teaches at a, uh, the Bible Seminary in Katy. And Scott will be coming and speaking some uh, weeknight in the next uh, two or three months here. So y'all are going to get a lot of really solid, cutting-edge, hot-off-the-press information that is really uh, demonstrating and confirming the truth of the Scripture. Archaeology doesn't prove it. It confirms it. And this in the face of a lot of attacks and assaults on the historicity and the veracity of the Bible. So I know you are going to uh, thoroughly enjoy Aaron speaking, so I'm going to open in prayer, 
and then I will turn it over to him. Our Father, we're very thankful that we have this opportunity to come together, that we've had this opportunity to have a speaker with the uh, uh, experience, background, and the things that he's involved with um, to come and enlighten us as to a lot of these discoveries and what is going on in, in, in relation especially to the discovery of Joshua's altar and other things related to it. So, Father, we thank you for this. We trust your word, but it's very insightful to find this information because it gives us a better understanding at many times of what the Scripture is actually talking about uh, when certain things are said. So we just ask your blessing on this time. In Christ's name, amen. So at 5 o'clock, I took Aaron and Doug Petrovich to dinner and sat there like a fly on the wall listening to them discuss all of these things related to these fines uh, in Israel. And don't you wish you could have heard uh, the things that we talked about? It was just fascinating. So uh, with that, Aaron, come up, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you. I want to thank uh, Pastor Robbie for not presenting me as an archaeologist. One of the fun things for my wife is to to see me going to churches and synagogues and seeing the pastor or the rabbi presenting me as the renowned professor of archaeology uh, from Israel. So I'm not an archaeologist. I'm a simple Jew um, who uh, who was in the right place in the right time. <laughs> Um, I always uh, start out by saying that uh, one day when my grand-grandchildren are going to go into the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, uh, their guide um, are, is going to take them and their parents, uh, and when they are going to pass by a, a, a glass, fortified glass exhibit, um, they're going to tell their, their, their friends that their grand-grandfather found it, um, and, and, and it's, it's really, really exciting, and I'm going to share that with you, um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, really during our um, touring of the United States, we just landed here two weeks ago in New York, and uh, Houston is our first uh, real um, station where we gave lectures. Yesterday, I gave a lecture at a synagogue here in Houston, um, and uh, prior to that, in, in a church. And I see the excitement um, in the eyes of both Jews and Christians uh, when I'm talking about this amazing topic. And I hope that by the end of this uh, four-hour lecture, uh, uh, you will will agree with me. So, um, first of all, where's my remote control? There it is. Okay. Like my wife says, it's right in front of you. Okay, so... Uh, I want to start with a, a, a testimony, uh, my own personal testimony. Uh, my father, Avi Lipkin, who some of you may know, um, was born and raised in Great Neck, Long Island, in, in New York. And his parents came from Europe. Um, they, went, they immigrated from Europe to Argentina, from Argentina to, to America. Uh, and uh, he was born and raised in Great Neck. Uh, one day, as a kid, he... Uh, he sees an article in a newspaper, um, and the, the article was written by no other than the Prime Minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion. 
And David Ben-Gurion is writing that all Jews have to leave their homes all over the world and come to their homeland, Israel. And my father, a 14-year-old boy, is angry at uh, Ben-Gurion for challenging his, uh, his identity as an American Jew. So he decides to go to his Hebrew teacher and write a letter to the prime minister of Israel um, saying how angry he was at what Ben-Gurion said. So the letters fly to Israel, um, and they, they, they land on Ben-Gurion's table, and he stops everything, all the wars, all the economic strife, everything, and he sits down and he writes this 14-year-old Jewish boy a letter, uh, and we have two letters from the, Israel's prime minister, 1964, 1965. And he writes to my father, you can be a good Jew in America, but if you want to be a complete Jew, you have to come to Israel. So if Ben-Gurion convinces you, you have to come. Uh, after the Six-Day War, 1967, there's a wave of immigration of Jews to the land of Israel, and my father immigrates in 1969. My mom, on the other hand, is an Egyptian Jewess from Cairo, and uh, they are one of the last Jews to stay in Egypt. Today, there's almost no Jewish community in Egypt, but in 1967, you had around 4,000 Jews living in Egypt. And when the Six-Day War broke, they heard a knock on the door. My mom opened the door, and there was an Egyptian police officer standing there, and he asked my grandfather, to accompany him for a five-minute investigation. That became a a two-year prison sentence, along with the rest of the Jews in Egypt. Uh, They went through torture and humiliation, and after two years, the family was deported from Egypt to France, and from there, they immigrated to Israel. My parents met in Jerusalem. Here I am. And I grew up... Uh, in a traditional Jewish home in Jerusalem, which means we believed in the Bible, we believed in God, but we weren't observant of the laws. And uh, two of my experiences as a kid was visiting my grandparents' house in Batyam. I remember going there with my parents, and we would sit at the living room, and you know, sometimes we would bring up stories about politics or wars or terrorism or things you know, connected to, to the people of Israel. And my grandfather would suddenly take his hands like this, and the whole family went quiet. And he looked at the ceiling in the living room, and he started praying to God in Arabic, because my grandfather was an Egyptian Jew, and that's the language he felt most comfortable with. And he would ask God to protect the state of Israel and guide our ministers and our prime minister in the right way, and et cetera, et cetera. I remember as a kid, um, you know, seven years old, eight years old, sitting there and, and looking at that and really absorbing the idea that God is everywhere. He's even in the living room. And if my grandfather, if grandfather could speak to him, I could too. And I remember as a kid speaking to God all the time, praying to him, crying to him in my bedroom, in my living room, uh, even walking in the street and, and, and talking to God in my head. It was one of those experiences that I had. 
The second thing that I remember as a kid is my parents buying me a series of the animated Bible for children. This is in Hebrew. And uh, I remember going through these books when I was in first grade, second grade. And uh, I, I, when, when Abraham was there sacrificing Isaac, I was there with him. I was, I was really reliving all these stories that are in those books. When Ezekiel saw these revelations, I was standing with Ezekiel, seeing them in front of me. For me, every event in the Bible was historical. It really happened. And it was, it was my heritage. So when I uh, started attending elementary school in Israel, I went to a secular school because we weren't religious. And uh, in public schools in Israel, you learn Bible. And so we had Bible class, and I aced my Bible classes because of this series. I knew everything before everybody else. Uh, when my teacher spoke about Abraham, I could tell her the parallels to Isaac and Jacob, and, and she would have to shush me all the time because she wanted the rest of the class to learn, and I was ruining it. Uh, but I really enjoyed Bible class in elementary school, and I really looked forward to continuing my Bible class in high school. And I went to a high school called Reneka Sen in Jerusalem, and I remember going into my Bible class excited, sitting at the, cl- at, at, at the, the chair, and my teacher went in the class, and she said, we are going to learn the book of Genesis. And I was so excited, because I knew Genesis, and I was going to ace this class again. And then she started saying things to me and to my classmates that I've never heard before. She said that the book of Genesis is a fairy tale and that all the stories there originate from Assyrian and Babylonian pagan mythologies and that the Israelite culture took these stories and manipulated them to fit monotheism. And I'm, st- I'm sitting there and I, and I just, I, where did this coming from? I'm, I'm, I'm not, what's going on? Are you saying that my, that my faith, my heritage is based on fairy tales, on pagan fairy tales that are not even mine? They're Assyrian and Babylonian. And then we start learning about the documentary hypothesis, that the, bo- the five books of Moses that the, the Jewish people revere the most are actually written by several authors uh, in different times, hundreds of years after supposedly Moses and Joshua. And I'm, I'm listening to these things, and I, I, I can't believe it. This is a Jewish school in Jerusalem, in the Holy Land. And my teacher is telling me that Judaism is based on a lie. That's, that's the subtext of what she taught me. Now, I came, come from a house that believes in God, a house that believes in the Bible, but the rest of my classmates are all secular, fully secular and atheist. Their first real meeting with the Bible is what my teacher is telling them. I finished high school, and I joined the Israeli army because um, my grandfather spoke Arabic, and my parents, I heard a lot of Arabic at home. The intelligence corps immediately took me, and uh, I served for three years. I can't tell you what I did, because I'll have to 
kill you. That's, that's one of the sentences that Israelis like to say the most. Um, and, but the, the best thing about those three years was meeting my wonderful wife, Esther. Um, she saw this handsome soldier, um, and uh, she came up to me and she said, you want to date me? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? And we started dating, and after about seven or eight months, she proposed, and I said, yes, and we got married. And uh, we moved from Jerusalem to Samaria. We wanted to a nice house, a private house. We looked for a religious community north of Jerusalem, and uh, we moved to a town called Ophrah. Ophrah is really near Bethel and Shiloh. And uh, one day, I, I go to my work in Jerusalem, and I pick up a hitchhiker. I don't know him. I'm still new in my town. And he comes into my car, and we start driving. And as we drive to Jerusalem, he says, uh, Hi, my name is uh, Rabbi Professor Yoel Elitzur. And I just was wondering, do you know what happened in this Arab village that we're passing by? And I said, no, I just it's an Arab village. And he said, this is Bitin. Bitin, this Arab village, is biblical Bethel. This is where Jacob dreamt the dream of the ladder. And I, I, you know, remember, remember that series of books. They were all in my mind, and suddenly I see the mountains. I see the sites where those stories happen. Continue on driving, and he says, you see, on the left there is a, an Arab village. The name of this Arab village is the two bears. These are the two bears that Elisha brought out of the forest coming up from Jericho when these people insulted him. The bears killed those people. This is where it happened. You see this place? This is the Arab village of Muhmas. This is where Jonathan fought the Philistines. And I'm listening to all these stories, and I know these stories, but I've never seen the places. That was the first time I understood how biblical the area I live in, how important it is. One day, as I work in a lawyer's office, a red-headed girl comes to me, and she says, Aaron, I see that you have a kippah on your head, so you're religious. Um, I learn archaeology in the Hebrew University. And I have some bad news for you. I said, what? She says, Moses and Joshua never really existed. The Exodus never happened. This is what they teach us in the archaeology department of the Hebrew University. So I'm having these, you know, these experiences. On the one hand, the, the educational system is teaching me that my faith is a lie, and on the other hand, the geography and my family are telling me that it's the truth. One day I walk in the streets of Jerusalem, and I see an ad. This is around the year 2007, and on that ad it says that Professor of Archaeology, Adam Zertal, from the Haifa University, is going to be lecturing about his discovery of Joshua's altar. And I see a conflict on this ad. A professor of archaeology is going to be discussing a discovery that talks about a biblical event and a biblical structure. 
How could that be? That's not what I know. So I said to myself, I have to go and listen to him. There's a catch. And I went and I sat there for three hours. My jaw was on the floor. I saw a modest person who was an atheist, who was a a, a minimalist, who was one of those guys that said that the Bible is a fairy tale, who says that the Bible is true. And uh, I'm going to be presenting that discovery to you in the next hour, uh, and I think that uh, you're going to really, really enjoy it. But before, before we present the archaeology, we need to first understand the scriptures. So I'm going to briefly go through the scriptures. I know that the, the pastor told you to read them and to get ready, so um, I'm sure that much of what I'm going to say uh, you already know. Uh, so we're talking about the event that Moses commands the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, and we first have to talk about the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is basically the following message. Israelites, you're going into the land of Israel. Be careful. If you go in my way, you'll have rain, you'll have food, you'll have uh, prosperity. If you don't go in my way, if you go and, and, and follow the ways of the Canaanites, the pagan ways, you will be cursed. That's, the, that's the, basically the big message of the book of Deuteronomy. But it's not, uh, it's not sufficient for Moses. Moses wants the Israelites to perform a physical ceremony that celebrates this idea of the freedom of choice. And so this is so important that it actually repeats itself, this commandment, twice in the book of Deuteronomy. So the first time is in Deuteronomy 11. And uh, here we have a very general description. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you're entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. What does it mean to proclaim? We don't know. But we have something connected to two mountains in Israel. Where are these mountains? These mountains are across the Jordan, westward toward the way of the setting sun, near the great trees of Moreh. The trees of Moreh are near Shechem. Okay, so this is really a very specific description of where these mountains are, where the ceremony is supposed to be done. But, it's, but, but we need more information. And Deuteronomy in chapter 27 gives us that information. Um, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land your God is giving you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Remember, plaster. Write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land, and when you have crossed Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ibal as I command you today and coat them with plaster. So the commandment is divided into several sub-commandments. The first one is erecting a memorial on Mount Ibal, plaster and writing the law. Okay, this is the first stage. The second stage is building an altar on Mount Ebal. Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool on them. Why? Because iron is what makes weapons. Weapons shed blood. 
The altar of God is a place of peace. It's a place that is pure, and therefore there has to be field stones, their natural form, not cut by iron. Okay? This is important. Build, build it with field stones and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. And you shall write very clearly all the words of this law on these stones you have set up. So again, we have field stones. We have a commandment to uh, do a big barbecue fest in honor of God. Um, and we have this repeating commandment to write the words of the law. Writing is part of this commandment. The next stage is the ceremony. Okay. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, there's a reason why I'm splitting it to, to sub-commandments, because we'll get to that later. The ceremony. When you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, and these tribes shall stand on Mount Ibal to pronounce curses. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice. And then we have a list of 12 curses. Okay? Now, we have the whole nation of Israel, six tribes on one mountain, six tribes on the other. The Levites are reciting each curse on this list. And the Israelites are saying amen to each of these curses. Let's read the first one. Cursed is anyone who makes an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of skilled hands, and sets it up in secret. Then all the people shall say, Amen. amen. What does this curse remind you? Ten Commandments. Very good. Let's read the second one. Cursed is anyone who dishonors their father or mother. What does this remind you? The Ten Commandments. Okay? This is not a coincidence. What we see here is, in the, again, in the minds of the Israelites, this is a second Mount Sinai. Okay? Here we don't have Ten Commandments. We have 12 curses. But, by the way, why 12? Twelve tribes. Okay, this is this is the point here. The point here is that the whole nation of Israel, the twelve tribes, are reconfirming or confirming the Sinai covenant. Oh, this covenant is actually more important than the Sinai covenant. Why? For two reasons. One, when you're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and you see all this fire and you hear God's voice. Do you have a choice? You don't have a choice. <laughs> you do what God says. Here, no fireworks. The Israelites are receiving God's covenant willingly. And the second reason is that it's happening in the land of Israel. The land of Israel is where all these commandments need to be performed. This is the place where the Israelites should receive the covenant. The list goes on and on. I won't go through all of it. Just to finish with the 12th one. Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out, then all the people shall say amen. Twelve curses. Now, Moses dies on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. Joshua brings the Israelites inside and performs 
the ceremony that was commanded by Moses. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. This is the barbecue part, okay? Now, there in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites were there, elders, officials, and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. So here we have the second part of the ceremony, six on one side, six on the other. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses. So there were also blessings there, not just curses. The Bible only details the curses, but there were also blessings. Just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women, the children, and the foreigners who lived among them. So this is just like Mount Sinai. Okay, This is where the whole nation of Israel convenes, not just the men and the elders, but also the women and the children, just like Mount Sinai. Um, now, we have a commandment, a clear commandment to build a stone altar. Where, how do we build a stone altar? The book of Exodus, if you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. Okay, again, the issue of iron being the, 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 the metal that sheds blood. Okay, King David, why doesn't he build a temple? Because his hands are full with blood. Okay, so... The first condition is dress stones. The second condition, and do not go up to my altar on steps or your private parts may be exposed. So the way going up to the altar cannot be stairs. It has to be something else. So, ladies and gentlemen, did all of this happen? It did, right? Historians acknowledge that after more than two centuries of archaeological research, there is still an absence of evidence for the presence of Israel in Egypt. The Exodus never happened. When we celebrate the Passover Seder, remembering the Exodus, we're celebrating an event that never happened. Why? Because there's an absence of evidence. You understand, the archaeologists, they went into the temples of Egypt and they read everything the pharaohs wrote. And the pharaoh don't write anything about ten plagues hitting Egypt, about the whole Egyptian army sinking in the Red Sea. There's nothing on the temples, no writings. So it didn't happen. You understand how crazy this is, right? I'm cynical, of course. It is hard to accept, but scholars today are convinced that Israel was not present at Egypt, nor wandered in Sinai. They did not conquer Canaan, nor inherited it to the 12 tribes, 
and the Israelite religion did not adopt monotheism on Mount Sinai, but at the end of the monarchical period. This is Professor Herzog from Tel Aviv. Okay? Again, everything we just talked about, Joshua erecting an altar, never happened. Joshua never existed. There was no conquest. The Israelites are actually Canaanites. Uh, they immigrated from the Canaanite cities, rebelling against their warlords, and establishing a new nation. That's one of those crazy theories in the academic world. Why are they saying that? They're saying that for two reasons. One, the academic world has a clear agenda against God and the Bible. I'm not politically correct. That's the truth. Atheism is a religion. Okay? It's not this scientific, objective mindset. It is a religion. It's a religion that doesn't believe in God. It's a religion that doesn't believe in miracles, that doesn't believe in prophecy, doesn't believe in providence. These are things that cannot exist. And that's the real reason. The second reason is the absence of evidence. Now, why is that a problem? Much of the stories that happened in the land of Israel, 97% of the stories in the Old Testament happen in a very specific area in the land of Israel, which is Judea and Samaria, the biblical heartland, the mountain ridge. And that area, believe it or not, was never thoroughly researched until 1978. Okay? In other words, Israel establishes independence in 1948. We have eight Arab armies attacking us. We're able to defend ourselves, but there's one Arab army that is victorious, the Jordanian army. They, infil they, uh, they infiltrate, they invade from the East Bank to the West Bank, occupy Judea and Samaria, and East Jerusalem. And for 19 years, the biblical heartland of Israel is out of reach for Israeli archaeologists. At the same time, they're saying there's no evidence, but how can they say that there's no evidence if they didn't really look for it. 1967, Israel liberates Judea and Samaria, unites Jerusalem, and all the archaeologists are excited because for the first time, they can freely go into Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, freely go to Hebron, Shiloh, Bethel, Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, and, and, and do their archaeological work. And so the decision is made to do an emergency survey of Samaria. Archaeologists are receiving parts to be under their responsibility. And what they're doing is they are doing an archaeological survey. What does it mean? They're walking and they're looking for any ancient remains, walls, pottery sherds, anything that was part of human activity, ancient human activity. They come to a certain place, they see pottery sherds, they pick them up, they see six pottery sherds from the Persian period. They open the map and they write, we found six pottery sherds from the Persian period. They continue walking. Another site, seven pieces of Roman pottery sherds. They write it on the map. That way they create a complete picture of the human activity in a certain area dating from the year 5000 B.C., to the world, to world War I. That's, that's the archaeology. 
They're not looking for anything biblical. They're not looking for the altar. They're not looking for the tabernacle in Shiloh. They're just documenting the archaeology because they don't believe that Judea and Samaria will continue being under Israeli control. They think that it's going to be returned to Jordan or become a Palestinian state. That's why it's an emergency survey. And Professor Adam Zertal, an atheist, left-wing, socialist Jew from a kibbutz in Israel, receives a mission to survey a very specific area with his students. That area is the Jordan Valley and the tribal land of Manasseh. I want to point out that Jericho is over here and the area that he is surveying is above Jericho. Again, this area that you're seeing was never surveyed, never. This is a blank, this is a white spot on the map of archaeology. And what, what's being done here is, is for the first time, an archeo- a thorough archaeological survey. And what Adam Zertal and his crew are discovering is amazing. Hundreds of ancient sites that no one ever documented or published or spoke about. Hundreds. And I'm just going to give you a taste of some of these discoveries. One of the claims of the minimalists is that there was, there's no evidence for the Israelite invasion into Canaan. Okay? We have a clear uh, scriptural mentioning of hundreds of thousands of Israelites crossing in the area of Jericho, and there's nothing, no evidence of the, the presence of hundreds of thousands of, of civilians, of people, nothing. And then Adam Zertal and his crew survey the Jordan Valley, and what they find is amazing. At the late Bronze Age, the time just before the entrance into the land of Israel, the Jordan Valley is empty. Comes the early Iron Age, and the Jordan Valley suddenly fills up with hundreds of semi-nomadic camps, which are basically these round sheep pens that were that had tents around them and these sheep pens just suddenly appear chronologically in the jordan valley and adam zertal and his crew believe that they appeared suddenly because they came from the east ladies and gentlemen what you're seeing is the archaeological proof for the israelite invasion into canaan okay now the reason why the professors didn't say that there was evidence is because nobody ever looked there. Now we do. The second thing that they find in the Jordan Valley, and one of my, I think one of the fascinating discoveries, are these huge enclosures built by the same culture that I just spoke about. Six footprint structures. These are um, mostly in the area of Samaria and the Jordan Valley. And uh, I'm not going to discuss them uh, in depth because that's a different lecture. Maybe next time I'll come, I'll speak about it. Um, but uh, they, re- they are really, really impressive. They are, these are like four, four or three, four football fields big. 
Um, these, they are usually stationed around the slopes of a mountain that served as an amphitheater overlooking the, the actions that were done inside the enclosure. Uh, and Professor Adams Ertal believed that these structures are biblical Gilgal, the ancient worshiping sites of the Israelites. Okay? But this is a different topic. We'll talk about this maybe next time I come. I want to concentrate on one of those footprint structures. Adam Zertal is surveying Mount Ibal in Samaria. Keep in mind, he doesn't believe in the Bible. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe that Joshua and Moses existed. He's just documenting ancient sites. And as he walks on the eastern slopes of Mount Ibal, he stumbles upon a footprint structure. Okay? This is an ancient wall um, that doesn't correspond with the geography. In other words, the people that built it, built it in a certain way for a certain reason, for a certain symbol. And as he walks inside into this enclosure, he sees more and more and more pottery sherds that he identifies with the Israelite culture. Okay, there's, a, there's, there's one specific uh, vessel that's called the colored rim jar that's very unique to the Israelite culture. As he goes inside, he sees that there is a huge pile of stone on the highest spot inside the enclosure. Um, if you could come to Israel and see this, that would be great just to understand how big this enclosure is. Um, but uh, thanks to my dear wife, I can actually kind of show you how it looks like. Um, and I have to tell you a small story before I show you. Uh, when I got married to my wife, Eti, I didn't know that Jews from Yemen uh, don't celebrate birthdays. And after we got married, you know, first year passes, second year passes, third year passes, and I'm not getting any presents. Okay, I'm coming into my house thinking there's going to be a surprise party. Nothing. Okay? And, uh, and the reason for that is because Yemenite Jews are very Spartan. They're very, they, they think that, that birthdays are a waste of money, basically. I reached the age of 40, and we're at, at my mother-in-law's house, and I tell, to my, I tell my wife, Eti, I'm 40 years old. I've been waiting for 15 years. It's time. Buy me something. And I, and I feel my mother-in-law's glare behind me. And my mother-in-law steps up and says, Aaron, do you know who celebrated their birthday in the Bible? And I said, who? She said, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, when he had the dreams of of Joseph, that he told Joseph, that was on his day, on his birthday. Do you want to be evil like Pharaoh? I said, yes. <laughs> if that's what it takes to get a birthday present here. So my wife sees the, the catastrophe coming with my mother-in-law, and she steps up and she says, Aaron, what do you want? What do you want for your birthday? And I said, a drone. And she looks at me and she says, how much does this drone cost? And I say, 
$1,500. And she says, not a dime. So I ask her if I can crowdfund for it. And she says, sure, do whatever you want. And I did. And I got my first drone when I was 40 years old. And I'm going to be sharing with you some amazing drone footage that I took. By the way, I'm part of Adam Zertal's crew thanks to having drones because I document the sites that they find. So you have to understand, it was purely for scientific reasons. <laughs> that's, that's why I wanted the drone. So what you're going to see now is a flyover the enclosure. You can actually see one of our groups visiting the site right here, so you can get an idea of how big it is. So just imagine Adam Zertal stepping into this enclosure, walking, seeing all the, the pottery shirts, and as he goes up to the area, he sees this pile of stone at the highest spot inside the enclosure. Um, you kind of like feel you're flying over it. Um, here is the archaeological sketch of the enclosure. You can see that there is an entrance inside that the enclosure is, is subdivided. In other words, there is an, a one area, and then if you want to access the second area, you need to go through stairs, and then you're inside, and this is where we have a pile of stone. Adam Zertal comes to the pile of stone, and he sees stones and pottery shirts, lots of pottery shirts mixed inside this pile, and he says, I have to come and excavate here. This, is, uh, this seems to be a very important site. So, 1982, he comes with his crew, and they start excavating. What does it mean to excavate? To go from top to bottom, document the layers and findings until you reach the bedrock. That's archaeology on one leg, as we say in Hebrew. And uh, Adam Zertal and his crew starts working on the pile of stone, and what they're doing is they're peeling off the layers of stone slowly to see what's under this pile of stone. It's like a birthday present that you get, you open, suddenly you find a surprise. And the surprise that comes up after a few days of peeling off this, this layer of stone is a really weird structure, really weird. It's a structure that is made out of field stones. It's a stone box that is sealed on the top and a ramp going up to it with two secondary ramps on both sides of the major ramp and two courts on both sides of the ramp. Here's another diagram just to make it a bit clearer. Again, we see a stone box, sealed, ramp, secondary ramp on both sides, and courts on two sides of the ramp with installations, these round circular uh, circles of stone, which are for archaeologists a clear sign that this is not a regular site, this is a, what's called in archaeology a cultic site, meaning a place where people brought offerings. People worshipped a deity. Okay? Adam Zertal is fascinated 
fascinated, and uh, but but what really interests him is what's inside. What's inside this box stone? Just like a birthday present that you open. What's inside here? And what he does is he opens up the seal and he starts excavating down. And what he finds is four layers of bones and ashes. A room that has no door. Okay, the only way to get inside is by the ramp. He takes the bones and he sends them to the Hebrew University to be analyzed. Results come in and the animals are very specific. The very specific list of animals, goats, sheep, cows, fallow deer. But what's interesting is the bones you don't find there. No pig bones, no donkey bones, no horse bones. This is a clear indication that this is an Israelite site. Because Israelites didn't do pork and all these animals. They didn't eat them. They didn't slaughter them. You find them in Philistine sites, in Canaanite sites, in Israelite sites, 0% pig bones. So, so this was another interesting fact for Adam Zertel. The bones were all young animals, mostly males. Adam Zertal continues excavating all the way down until he reaches the, the most ancient level at the, inside this structure, which is this circular this circle of stone that you see at the exact geometric center of this room. He calls it the founding structure or the founding altar. Okay, this is, so basically what we have here is the chronology of this structure. Someone came here 3,400 years ago, built this circular structure, and then the second stage was building this whole structure on top of this circular structure. And the third level was intentionally covering it with stone which kept it for thousands of years intact. I have many people are asking me, how is it possible that a structure from the time of Joshua survived earthquakes, invasions, wars? It's a per, in a peripheral area covered with stone, intentionally. So all Adam Zertal and his crew had to do was come and peel off the outer layer and find this structure. What else did they find? Egyptian earrings, gold and silver. Scarabs. Now, what's interesting about scarabs, these Egyptian luck charms that were all over the Middle East, is that they really help archaeologists date a site because these scarabs um, uh, relate to a certain pharaoh. And when we know which pharaoh it is, we can kind of understand from which time it is. At the time, one scarab was dated to the reign of Thutmus III, and the second one was dated to the reign of Ramses II. Now, I don't know if you've heard, there is a big discussion amongst Bible scholars when did the Exodus happen. You have the Jewish traditional and evangelical view 
that it happened around the year 1450. And you have the other school that says that if there was an exodus, it was during the time of Ramses II. And the two pharaohs that are spoken about are Ramses II and Thutmose III, these two scarabs. So according to the archaeology, you date to the later pharaoh. So Adam Zertal believed that this structure was from the time of Ramses II, and therefore the guys with the late exodus are victorious. Just a year ago, an Egyptologist by the name of Daphna Bento reviewed these scarabs and redated the Ramses II scarab to Tatmas III. So, Jews and Christians are victorious, okay? That brings back the date to the biblical date, around the year 1450. Um, and I, I, there's a scholar that I'm in touch with. He's a, he's a Christian, he's a Lutheran uh, a pastor, and uh, he was one of the people that wrote about how the altar uh, um, proves the later exodus. And when I spoke to him and I told him the good news about the, rea- the, the, the new dating of the uh, Ramses II scarab, he said, it's a game changer. So that's interesting. Another thing they found was a pumice chalice. Um, this is the second one that is found all over the world. The, sec- the first one was found in the Sinai at Serabit al-Khadim. So we have an interesting connection to Sinai. And ladies and gentlemen, lots and lots of pieces of plaster. Okay. So Adam Zertal is seeing all of these findings and many others, and he does what every archaeologist does. He tries to understand who built this structure, what culture, what religion. And in order to do that, he goes to libraries, and he looks everywhere, Egypt, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Hittites, looking everywhere for any structure that could be similar to this structure that, that, uh, that he found, and he can't find anything. One day, he's sitting at the dining hall of Shavay Shamron, and he's sketching uh, this uh, picture of this weird structure. And a religious Jew passes by and looks behind him and he says, Professor, is this the structure that you found on Mount Eval? And Adam Zertal looks at him and says, Yes, I don't know what it is. I looked everywhere. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Hittites. I couldn't find any parallels. And he sees this Jew suddenly all excited, and and he runs away, the Jew. And he comes back with a book, and he opens the book, and he shows Adam Zertal a sketch of the second temple altar. And Adam Zertal is looking at it, and what he's seeing is a stone box, a ramp, and two secondary ramps on both sides of the altar. Now, keep in mind, this is the second temple altar. It's 1400 years later than Joshua. 
But what Adam Jotal is seeing is an Israelite altar during the Second Temple period. And when he sees it, his whole world collapses. Everything that he was taught, everything that he was educated upon, crumbles. He looks at this religious Jew and he says, Tzvi, that's his name, Tzvi, we found an Israelite altar on Mount Eval. And there's only one possibility. This is Joshua's altar. And if this is Joshua's altar, then Joshua really existed. And Moses existed. And the exodus happened. And the religious Jew looks at him and says, of course. <laughs> you needed all of this to get to this conclusion. Adam Zertal describes how for, that for three days they cannot sleep because of this, the magnitude of this discovery. And, you know, the next thing that happens, Adam Zertal is inviting people from all over the world and professors, and, and he's waiting for them to say, we were wrong. We are so sorry for all the books we wrote and all the papers we wrote about how the Israelites never invaded and that Joshua never existed and the altar was never constructed. It's all baloney. It's all fairy tales. He was waiting for them to say, oh, well, we have to rethink this. We have to... Do you think they did it? you think the professors admitted that they were wrong? No. Okay? But you have to understand why. Adam Zertal identified the site that is commanded in Deuteronomy, the last book of the five books of Moses, and is built according to the scriptures in the book of Joshua that starts the books of the prophets. The altar is a nail that nails down these two parts of the Bible together. The repercussions of admitting that that is Joshua's altar for the academic atheist world is an atomic bomb. That's what it is. Or as Professor Steger said from Harvard, if there is an altar on Mount Ibal, as Ertal claims, we biblical scholars should all go back to kindergarten. But when, when I stood with Adam Zertal, when he spoke to my groups, the groups that I bring to Israel, I saw the frustration in his eyes, the understanding that the academic world is really not objective, that the academic world has an agenda, that the academic world has politics, and they're, they're not open-minded. <laughs> and, uh, and there was always sadness in his eyes. Now, the problem, one of the problems that Adam Zertal encountered was that every major excavation ends with a final report. In order to, to write a final report, you need money. And archaeologists are not rich people. Okay, where do you get the money from? From grants. Who gives the grants? The universities. Will the universities give a grant to a discovery that proves them wrong? No. Will they give a grant to a discovery that's in Judea and Samaria 
which is according to much of the academic world, the occupied territories, the place that belongs to the Palestinians and not the Jews, not the Israelites, they have no connection to that area? No. And Adam Zertal cannot write a final report for 30 or 40 years. And if you don't have a final report, it does not become a, a fact in the academic world. But I have good news. Last year, we got a very generous donation. And January 1st, 2023, the final report started being written. Hopefully next year, we're going to have a big conference that's going to show that report. So, thank God. So I'm bringing groups from all over the world to visit Joshua's altar um, because I love this site and I feel that, that when I'm standing there, I'm touching Joshua, I'm touching Moses, I'm touching the Israelites. But what I'm seeing is something terrible. I'm seeing um, the site deteriorating. I see the stones falling down because visitors are standing on top of the altar and how the stones are just falling because people are not careful. I see Palestinians coming and graffitiing on the, on the walls of the altar. I see them burning tires inside the altar. Um, I see a, an Arab construction uh, a manager coming with his bulldozer and taking stones from the enclosure wall to make gravel to a nearby road. All these things, and I'm just, I'm just, I can't take it. I can't take it that such an important biblical site is slowly being destroyed. And why isn't Israel, the Jewish state, taking care of this such important site? When Israel signs the Oslo agreements with the Palestinians, an archaeologist in the Israeli army makes sure that the border between Israel and the Palestinians excludes the altar. The altar is inside the Palestinian Authority. It's crazy. I'm standing at the altar, and the Israeli side is, is like 50 meters away. Sorry for using the metric system. 50 meters away. It's nothing. It's like from here to the parking lot, and there is a border. Israelis cannot go, go freely into it. Intentionally. You understand how crazy this is. I go to Dr. Shai Bar, Adam Zertal's student. Adam Zertal already passes away in 2015. And I say to Shai, Shai, we need to do something. We need to save this site. What can we do? And Shai looks at me and he says, Aaron, I cannot touch this site. If I touch it, my career is gone. I meet a, an archaeologist from the U.S. His name is Dr. Scott Stripling, a Houstonian, some, a, a, an archaeologist from Houston. He excavates in Shiloh, and I come to Scott, and I say, Scott, have you ever been to Joshua's altar? And he says, no. And I say, I'm taking you. And I took him to Joshua's altar, and here, are, here is the video I took from that visit. Scott, what, what, 
What can you say about this? Well, this is one of the most incredible sites in Israel. It ties in with the earliest Israelite heritage, and this this rectangular altar was built by people who wanted to venerate what God had done in this place. Underneath it is a, a round altar that we're interested in exploring also. When when people come to a place like this, they connect with their faith heritage. And when we Scott fell in love with the site just like me. I love you, Eti, too. I love you, too. But we also fell in love with this site. And, and Scott says, Aaron, I know you want to do something here, but we have a problem. I, I cannot come and excavate here. I can't touch the altar because if I touch it, my career is gone. You have to understand, the site is in Area B under Palestinian uh, archaeological responsibility. You cannot touch it without getting a permit. But you will not get a permit because Israel won't let the Palestinian Authority give a permit because it's, an, it's a Jewish heritage site. So nothing can be done. Archaeologists cannot touch this structure. But Scott says to me, Aaron, you are not an archaeologist. So I'm looking at him and I say, yes. And he says, Aaron, Adam Zertal in the 1980s created archaeological dumps. He took the material outside of the altar and he threw it after analyzing it to the valley. Now, he didn't dry sift and he didn't wet sift the material, which means that much of the findings are still waiting waiting for us to be discovered in the dump. So what you need to do, Aaron, you need to make sure that all the dump is transferred to a safe location. I will come with my crew, and we will dry-sift it and wet-sift it. Maybe Adam Zertal missed something. So when a Texan from Houston says something to you, you say, yeehaw. (laughs) So I go with my drone, which I bought for purely scientific reasons, and I locate the dumps that are near the altar. There's one on the eastern side, one on the western side, and there's one smaller dump on the northern side. I set a time with the army, wake up in the morning, I put my phylacteries on, my prayer shawl, I look to the heavens like my grandfather, and I say, God, give us something. Make us successful. Don't stop us. Let us do this and, and bring whatever we can from that site. And uh, we, we come three times, and we extract the materials, once with Christian volunteers. Another time with uh, young volunteers, Jewish volunteers from the communities around. Uh, Altogether three times, we are able to move 30% of the dump to Shavei Shomron, a community nearby. Scott comes with the ABR crew, Associates of Biblical Research, and they start wet sifting and dry sifting, looking, looking at reanalyzing all the material that Adam Zertal threw to the dump.
One day, I get a call from Scott. And he says, Aaron, get over here. I drive to Shavei Shamron. I approach Scott, and he opens his hand. And I see a small, I see a really small piece of something. And I say to Scott, Scott, what is it? And he says, Aaron, I don't know. We found it in the dump. It's made out of metal. I've seen these objects from later periods in history, the Roman period, the Persian period. It looks like a cursed tablet, but I'm not sure. And the site that we are that you took this from, Joshua's altar, was only used once in history by the Israelites. The Persian and the Romans didn't walk around there because it's a peripheral area. So I really don't know what it is. Scott sends it to the Hebrew University, and they see a lead strip of metal that was folded. So what they try to do is they try to open it to see what's inside, and it starts breaking. So they stop. And the next thing is they send it to the Czech Republic to be x-rayed and scanned from all directions, outside and also inside. This is called tomography, and this is the machine that, that did the scans. And we have hundreds of scans that are being produced and sent to Scott and his team. Scott starts receiving reports from the professors in, in, in the Czech Republic that they are seeing strange indentations inside and outside of the tablet. Yeah. scans are being sent and they're seeing these weird um, symbols on inside and also outside after a few days Scott calls me and he says Aaron we are identifying letters and these are not Roman letters they're not Greek letters they're not Persian letters. Aaron, it's ancient Hebrew. You, can't, you have to understand the excitement. We never thought in our wildest dreams that we will find something like this. It's the, the dream of every archaeologist to find inscriptions because that's the real, that's the best, um, the best way to express yourselves. And, and, and this is what we found. After a few months, Scott decides to come out with a press conference and, and, and publicize the text that was written on the tablet. Now, this is a, a very long press conference, so I'm not going to show you all of it. Uh, I, I, I edited it mainly to the parts where Scott mentions my name. <laughs> First of all, I'd like to say about Aaron Lipkin. It was Aaron and I who originally dreamed or brainstormed this idea on the last day of the Shiloh excavation in 2019. And um, it was going to take someone on that end to logistically help pull things off, to, to relocate the dump material and just do so many logistical things. And so Aaron and I dreamed about this. And um, so it was that initial collaboration that was key to bringing this to fruition. So thank you, Aaron. Working on the inside of the tablet, <clears throat> we recovered 40 Hebrew letters. 
And uh, this is in a script that we would call proto-alphabetic script. Uh, sometimes if it's from the, the Sinai, it's referred to as proto-Sinaitic, or sometimes folks would refer to this as proto-Canaanite. We will call it proto-alphabetic script. Eleven of these letters are Alephs, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and they are all the archaic form. This is older than Paleo-Hebrew. This precedes, predates Paleo-Hebrew. And so you have an ox head that is morphing into, into an aleph. And in the 23-word English translation, which you're looking at, the word curse, arur in Hebrew, appears 10 times. And, ladies and gentlemen, the name Yahweh appears twice. We now have the name Yahweh, the, the biblical god of Israel, in an inscription dating from LB2, which is earlier than many skeptics would argue that the Bible existed or that there was even the ability to write down a sacred text. Okay, this is uh, Stuart Peck from Appian Media. Yes, we did excavate through about 30% of the material, Stu, and uh, we would love to excavate through more, and um, hopefully we will have generous donors that will enable us to do that. Uh, this, this is all, of course, a very expensive process. We would love to do more work on Mount Ebal uh, in the future. This was the test, if you will, to find out what was in the dump piles. And we, uh, the day that Aaron Lipkin and I, last day we went to look at the site to inaugurate the project, as we pulled away and stopped and looked back, uh, it had rained a little earlier and there was a rainbow over the altar. And uh, instead of a pot of gold, we found a pot of lead at the end of the rainbow. Okay, uh, we have another. So... You understand the magnitude of this discovery, okay? I'll just I just mention a few things in a few minutes, um, but but this is really a groundbreaking discovery, and um, you know th this was this 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 was I think in 20, 2021, this press conference, and twenty twenty two twenty twenty two, and and I've been going to to churches and synagogues and telling them that there's going to be a final report written about this. Uh, and everybody's like, so when is, it, when is it going to publish? When is it going to be published? And, and it was finally published uh, about a month ago. And I'm going to, to show you that again. But what I want to show you is the, the last version um, of the text that was um, analyzed. And um, Jews do not uh, pronounce the name of the Lord. Uh, so I'm going to say the Lord instead. Uh, but I'm going to read it for you. You are cursed by the God the Lord cursed, you will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed, you are by the Lord cursed. Okay, the terrible curse. You want to hear it in Hebrew? Okay. I'm not going to say the name of the Lord, of course. Ata arur lael Hashem arur. Tamut arur. Arur. Mot tamut. Arur ata lahashem arur. Okay. Um, I think that, that, that finding a curse tablet on the mountain of curse is really interesting. Um, but if you read this, it, it's really, it could really be a, a curse that's uh, written by an Israelite woman that is angry at her husband for not doing the dishes. Okay, because it talks in the singular masculine form. Um, so you know it could be it could be a, a personal a curse of, of an individual, an Israeli individual. But even if that's the case, okay, the fact 
that we have a document that is clearly identified with the Israelite God, the Lord, YHW, is, is by itself a, 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 another atomic bomb on the academic world because, according to the academic world, first of all, the Israelites were illiterate. They did not know how to read and write because they didn't find any writings from the time of Moses and Joshua. Okay, we, They go to temples in Egypt, lots of writing everywhere. They go to Assyria and Babylon, lots of canoe-form tablets, lots of writing. No Israelite writings. And the Bible says that Moses came down with Ten Commandments, that he received lots of writing, that Joshua wrote the writing on the stones, the laws. No writing. So the Israelites, there's no evidence, so the Israelites are illiterate. They're not. Okay, why do we know that now? Because it's engraved on metal. And Israelites usually write on parchments, on leather. And that doesn't hold for much long. Okay, the fact that we found the Dead Sea Scrolls that are 2,000 years old is a miracle. Finding parchments from 3,400 years ago is impossible. But we're illiterate. So now we're not illiterate. The second thing is the name of the Lord, YHW. According to the academic world, the Israelites only started worshiping the Lord, the name YHW, much later, around the year 800 BC. And here we have a document that has the name in a time that Joshua and Moses lived. Not only that, we have God's name, YHW, and his other name, L, together on the same document. And that's another groundbreaking discovery in the academic world. It goes totally against all the academic thoughts of, of the development of the Israelite theology. If it's a personal curse. Is it? We'll see. So the article was published a month ago in Heritage Science. Um, you're more than invited to go in, download, free download the, uh, the article, read it. Uh, you'll see all the scans and you'll see all the, the, uh, the, how they analyzed it. It's really, really fascinating. Uh, it was peer-reviewed, so it's a scientific fact. This is the final report, the one that Adams Rattel didn't do and we will have next year. So you want to see how it looks like? The, 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 how they, the Israelites wrote on the tablet. Do you want to see it? Yeah. So before we do that, I'm going to give you a crash course in ancient Hebrew. Okay? Here you see modern Hebrew, the top line. Modern Hebrew derives from second temple Hebrew. You see the Aleph here and the Aleph here. They're very similar this is how they wrote in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is, the, this is how, how Jesus wrote. Okay, this is from that time. When you go back in time to the first temple period, the letters are different. Uh, they're what's called Phoenician or Paleo-Hebrew. But there's even an earlier version of Hebrew. You see this line? What do you see? See pictures. Okay, 
every picture here is a letter. Kind of like the, they look like the, the Egyptian hieroglyphs, right? But the Egyptian hieroglyphs, every sign could be a sentence or, or a whole world, word. Here, every sign is a letter. And every picture is a picture that starts with the letter that it represents. For example, fish in Hebrew is dag, and this is the letter dalid. Okay? The letter kaf is a palm of a hand, kaf. The letter yud is a yad, a hand, and so on and so forth. The letter hey is a man standing saying, hey! Okay? This is, this is how they wrote during the time of Joshua and Moses, and we know this from the Sinai. Um, there is a very interesting fellow in the ABR team called Steve Rod, and he calls these letters hieroglyphic Hebrew. I like that term, so I'm going to be using it. Ladies and gentlemen, the inscription inside the lead tablet is the most ancient form of Hebrew. Ready? And I thought my handwriting was terrible. Okay? Um, here is the, uh, this is the, the 46 letters inside the lead tablet. There are 44 letters outside of the lead tablet as well. There are two inscriptions. The article only talks about the inner inscription. This is, you see every letter here has, this is, you see this guy? This is hey. Okay, and so on and so forth. You want to see the inscription outside? The article wasn't written yet. Here it is. This is outside. Same inscription. Two letters less. The name of God. L, not YHW. L doesn't appear on the outer picture. Okay. Now, how was the name of the Lord, YHW, written on the tablet? Like this. This is the letter Yud. This is the letter Hey. And this is the letter Vav. And I have to tell you, as a, as a religious Jew looking at this, I'm shocked. Because we so revere our Torah scrolls that we use. And the letters there are letters that derive from the Second Temple version. And here I'm seeing the letters that were probably on the Ten Commandments. And I'm saying to myself, what's going on here? I mean, we're, we're revering these letters that, of the Second Temple, but these are the original ones. And I'm shocked that they looked like this. Okay, let's summarize quickly. I think that you're starting to... You want to go home, maybe? Or you want to keep listening? I don't know. So we'll do this really quick. Uh, let's summarize. The text includes 46 letters inside, 40, 48 letters inside, 46 letters outside. Uh, the name of God appears four times. Uh, the names YHW and L appear together. Uh, the text is is complex. It's written in a chiastic parallelism form which shows uh, sophistication. It shows literate abilities. Um, we have unvoweled and voweled Hebrew spelling, which is also goes contrary to what the academic world has been saying. Uh, and this is the most ancient version of Hebrew font.
um, conclusions. We're talking about the Israelite religion. The Canaanites did not worship YHW, okay? Only the Israelites did. It's the first time that it appears in the land of Israel. First time. It's in such an early stage. Israelite ethnicity, because it's Hebrew. Okay, this clearly shows that the site of Joshua's altar was not a Canaanite site. It was a site that was used by the Israelite culture. The Israelites knew how to read and write, okay, contrary to what the academic world says. And very interestingly, there is a possible connection between the ceremony of blessings and curses and a curse inscription that is found on the mountain of curse. The metal was dated to the late Bronze Age. It was uh, uh, orig- originated from mines in Greece, okay, that, that, that worked in the late Bronze Age. That also helps us date the, uh, the tablet. The altar and foot structures are now clearly Israelite. No one can say that they're not. Now, possible connection to the ceremony of blessings and curses this, what you're going to see now is my, my view, okay? So, what are the parallels that, could, that might say that this tablet is not an Israelite woman cursing her husband, but a document, a national document that was part of the ceremony in Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua 8? First of all, According to Professor Gershon Galil, the fact that we have a tablet that was folded is a, a, a cultural symbol in the Middle East of a document, a legal binding document. The second, we have six arur, the word cursed in Hebrew, on one side of the tablet and six arur on the other. This could symbolize the six tribes standing on one side of the mountain and six tribes on the other. Why did they write on both sides? Thirdly, if it's a curse tablet that was written by an individual, you have to have a name inside. They're cursing someone, okay? Or a title of someone. There's no name inside the tablet. Who are they cursing? Um, we have a total of 12 cursed. Remember the list of 12 curses? Could it be that every time that the word curse is mentioned on the tablet, it represents one of those curses that we read? The fact that we have a skilled scribeman that, that writes this, is, it shows that this is, this is something that takes a lot of energy, a lot of a lot of effort. And finally, uh, the fact that it, we found it, we scraped it from the upper parts of the dump. The dump is a mirror picture of the altar. So the tablet came from the most inner parts of the altar. So, what do you think? Is it connected? I have some good arguments, I think. Now, now that we found a lead tablet with a curse, we need to turn to the Bible. See if there's anything in the Bible that talks about engraving on metal. Okay? So, engraving 
in the Bible on metal, the book of Job. Okay, this is one of the most ancient books in the Bible, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. Engraving on metal is forever. Okay? That's why we found it. Another place in the Bible that's interesting, Zechariah 5. Hey, the writing is a bit small, so I have to get closer because I'm nearing my 50s. Um, we have two revelations. One is the flying scroll, and I'm going to read a sentence. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. So we have a revelation, a prophecy about a curse. And then the second prophecy that's connected to this one, then the cover of lead was raised, and there is in the basket set a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover on it. So lead has some relationship in the Bible with curse. Okay, it's, maybe it's a negative type of metal associated with curse. Interesting. Unlike gold, which is sometimes a good metal, just like on the high priest's head. Okay, which brings me to another insight that I came up with. And I'm going to share this with you, and you might say at the end, Aaron, you lost your mind. Okay, but... The more I speak about it in churches, the more I think I'm right. Okay, so you're sitting, okay? As, as someone who became religious later on in his life, going to a synagogue uh, and sitting there, what you see basically, the prayer is a dialogue between the congregation and the, 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 the person who leads the prayer. But suddenly, every morning in Israel, something weird happens. The prayer stops, and people come out of the congregation, the priests, the descendants of Aaron. They stand in front of everybody, facing Jerusalem. They cover themselves with their prayer shawls, and they say a blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has commanded us to bless his people Israel with love. And then they turn around, they stand like this, and they say the ironic blessing over the congregation. This is one of the most sacred parts of the Jewish prayer at synagogue. It's a time when the fathers cover their children with their prayer shawls, and receive the blessing, the Aaronic blessing from the priests. But again, as someone who wasn't religious, it seemed odd that they're standing like this. Where is it written in the Bible that that's what they need to do? And the answer I gave myself was, it's a tradition. It's from Sinai. We don't know. That's, that's one of those sentences we sometimes say to, us, to ourselves if we don't have an explanation. But now, after finding the tablet, I think I have an answer. This is how it looks like. This is in the western wall, and this happens every morning 
but also in, in major feasts, and this is one of those feasts. These are the priests saying the blessing before the Aaronic blessing. After saying the blessing, they turn around and face the congregations. And then the leader of the prayer says every word, word by word. Okay, this is, I'm just, I'm just showing you a, just a, a part of it. This is, again, one of those most amazing parts of the, of, of the prayer. Why are they doing that? Why are they standing like this? And I, I read, I looked at the Bible, and, and, I, and I start looking at the Aaronic blessing, looking for any clues why they're standing like this. And right after the Aaronic blessing, there is the commandment to the priesthood. What does that commandment say? Let's read the Aaronic blessing. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. The commandment to the priesthood is to put God's name on the Israelites. This is how God's name looks like. A man standing like this with two letters on both sides. The reason why the priesthood is standing like this is because they are embodying God's name by standing like this, showing God's name to the Israelites, putting God's name on the Israelites. And I only got to this conclusion because of the lead tablet. How amazing is that? Remember, the Israelites are fighting the Amalekites. What's happening? Moses is standing on a mountaintop, and Aaron and Hor, what are they doing? Holding his hands. Okay, why? What's, what's the story? What's going on? He's putting God's name on the Israelites so they win the, the, the war. That's, suddenly we get these understandings, these amazing insights. And I think that the last insight that we need to talk about, the last question, the big question is, why is the altar of God built on the mountain? Of course. If I was God, or Moses, I would command the Israelites to build my holy altar on the good mountain, the mountain of blessing. Why is the commandment to build the altar on the bad mountain? 
Ready for the answer? The ceremony of blessings and curses is all about free choice. God is saying to the Israelites, if you follow my commandments, if you follow me, you will be blessed. And if you don't, if you choose not to follow my way, you will be cursed. But you have the freedom of choice. That's the big message. Why then is the altar on the mountain of curse? God is saying, if you choose to walk in my way and you want to be blessed, you choose Mount Gerizim, good for you. But if you're not willing to follow my way and you're cursed and you have that moment in your life where nothing is going right, nothing is successful, and and you have this moment where you're saying, God, save me. Bring me back to you. Show me the way. The altar of God is waiting on Mount Ibal for the sinner. The altar, the sacrifice, is what atones. This is where the altar has to be. Or as it says in Ezekiel, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Thank you. Um, thank you. Before I finish, I have a few words to say. First of all, Joshua's altar um, is an amazing sight. Unfortunately, 99.9999999% of the tourists that are coming to Israel don't get to visit it. Um, and I highly recommend, if you ever come to Israel, please, please visit the site. It's possible. Okay, here is a picture of our, one of our groups. You might recognize this guy over here. Professor Randall Price um, and, uh, and, and his group of students that came with us to Joshua's altar. Um, and so you're more than invited to contact us and we will arrange it for you. The second thing is uh, if you want more information on Adams or Tal's uh, discoveries, uh, we have several products waiting on the table outside. Uh, if you want specifically to concentrate on uh, Mount Ibal and the altar. I have a Bible teaching that I did with a Christian friend, um, and it has amazing, amazing drone footage that I did. And a, a book that was written by Adam Zertal, A Nation Born, about the discovery of the altar. You can follow my YouTube channel, lots of information on Joshua's altar, including an online course that I did during the COVID period. So you're more than invited to listen to that. And my Facebook page, which I constantly post uh, information, articles uh, that you can follow. So you can follow me. I also uh, write several, and by the way, the, uh, the products outside, uh, we have a sale. Uh, for $100, you can get everything. So um, just know that when you go there, because uh, I need a new drone. Um, 
so this is uh, alteroftjoshua.com. This is where I write my blogs. I have several articles that I wrote in the past few months related to the tablet and the footprint structures. So you're, again, you're more than invited to, to see that. And uh, hope to see you soon in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. That was my second time to hear that after hearing the other night. Um, I had to make it. Was asked to make an announcement. Who, who said I needed to make an announcement? I can't remember what it was. It wasn't written down. Where'd Sandy go? Yeah, there are books back there. Okay, that was just on that. Okay, now one thing you did not explain. There's two explanations for this. But why does the priest hold his hand? the way he did? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I believe that, uh, that uh, um, the Israelites really liked Star Trek. <laughs> I know. By the way, uh, Leonard Nimoy, Spock, was Jewish. He was a Cohen, and that's where he brought the gesture, that gesture into, into... Live long and prosper. Stuff. Yes, exactly. But actually, this represents the Hebrew letter Sheen, which is the first letter in... Shem, the Hebrew word for name. So a lot of times ah, when Jews are reading the name, reading and they come across the Tetragrammaton, they will read Adonai or they will read Hashem. The name. The name. That is the more accurate explanation. But from that, Nimoy got his inspiration for live long and prosper. So y'all just need to know all this kind of little. Trivia that goes around in my head. All right. Well, thank you very much, yeah, you Aaron. You said two things. Hmm? You said two things. That was that. No, that, there were just two okay. things related to it: the Nimoy and the name of God. Okay. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for what we've learned tonight. Uh, just there are riches and depths to your word that that often we don't get into, and archaeology is not only valuable for confirming the historical accuracy of scripture, but giving us enlightenment as to what was done and why it was done. So we thank you for that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One thing, a point I want to make, make it all the time. The Bible, Christianity, is different from every other religion in the world. Why? Two things. Because it's grounded in space-time history. It happens at geographical locations so that you can go to those geographical locations 3,000 years later and you know exactly what happened there and what God taught people at that location. That's very important. It shows it's historically true. And chronology, it's always grounded in time. That tells us that if these things are true, I love the conclusion. You know, if this is true, then that means the Bible's true. But that doesn't just apply to the Old Testament. If that applies to the Old Testament, it applies to every prophecy in the Old Testament, and therefore it applies to everything in the New Testament. That ties it together. Okay. Be warm and be filled. <laughs>